Amen and amen. Philippians chapter 4, please. If you're a guest tonight, good to see you. Glad you're here. Uh, thankful that you came on a Sunday night. And I want to say, since the turn of the year, we've had some great Sunday night attendance. Amen. Great Sunday night attendance. So thankful for that. And, and it even seems like it's been more than just people coming to church and showing up. It's like you come ready to have church. Amen. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that we don't have to have a pep rally to wake everybody up. That's how it should be every time we come into God's house. We should be ready, tuned in, ready to hear from God and, and give uh, His name the praise and worship it's due. Thank you for being here tonight. Philippians chapter 4, partners in the gospel. We've got two more messages out of Philippians. So let's uh, begin this one, reading in verse number 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And I want you to read verse 13 out loud together. Ready? Read. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. What an amazing verse. It's even more amazing and it carries greater power when it's kept in its context. And we're going to learn what that verse means tonight. I could preach verses 10 through 20 all together. It is one big thought. But Paul took a break. He took a two or three verse break to tell them about how he's learned contentment. And so I feel like we need to break up the text to talk about how we too can learn Contentment. In our lives, some things come naturally. And then there are some other things that have to be learned. I think in the area of music. For some of these kids that we're singing up here tonight, music came very naturally to them. For others, not so naturally. Not as easy. The piano player that plays for the quartet that I sing in the Amen Quartet, his name is Joe Miser. His, his parents recognized a talent in him to play the piano very, very early on in his childhood, and so they put him in piano lessons. When he got in piano lessons and the teacher tried to teach him music, um, he couldn't do it. But when she played a CD and said, play it, as a, as a little child, he could play exactly what the CD played. And she said, I can't teach him. And that, that blows my mind that somebody can listen and then all of a sudden just go on a keyboard and play it. It comes naturally. For others, it doesn't come as easily. They've got to have the sheet music before them. Um, public speaking. Have you ever heard a speaker, whether at your place of business or even here at the church, and you thought in your mind, man, they're just kind of a natural public speaker, but yet when I get up there, I just fear. It's like I, I, would, I would rather do anything, even die, rather than public speak. It comes naturally. In the area of athletics, I've had an opportunity to coach my son the last couple of years. And you can tell in the very first practice, doesn't matter what the sport is, within the first two minutes, who's athletic and who's not. Who has to really work at it, and, and then for some it comes easy. And then you go to school, and, and there are some kids, they might not be athletic, but they can go in, and math comes naturally for them. Now those people are rare. They're rare, they're annoying. They're unnatural. The Lord uses all kinds, though. We need rocket scientists. We need doctors. Some things come naturally, and some things are 
learned. I'll tell you at least one thing that doesn't come naturally for any of us. I don't care how spiritual you are or how long you've been saved, remember this church. And that's contentment. If the Apostle Paul, someone who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, greatest church planner in history, pioneer of the early church, if he had to learn how to be content, don't you think you have to learn? And I have to learn how to be content. What is contentment? Here's our working definition. You hear it over and over tonight. An inner joy and stability that transcends your circumstances. I want you to get that. It's an inner joy. It's not superficial. It's an inner joy and stability that transcends your circumstances. Listen, that doesn't come naturally. You can look all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve had the entire Garden of Eden except one tree. The serpent convinced them that God was holding out of them. I heard Brother Mike preach a phenomenal message on this a couple weeks ago. Because of their discontentment, they wanted the one thing they didn't have, so they gave up what they did have for the one thing they didn't have. Discontentment, now we're hardwired to be discontent. What is discontentment? It's an inner turmoil and unrest because of your circumstances. Did you, did you catch that? Contentment is an inner joy and stability that transcends your circumstances. Discontentment is an inner turmoil because of your circumstances. I came by this poem, and it, it's just so true. The poem says, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was now winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated, because all 30-year-olds are sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. There are three general categories of discontentment. Material, relational, and circumstantial. And there are three phrases of discontentment that arise in the midst of these different situations. We say, if only... Or we say or think, what if? If only is imagining a different future. What if is imagining a different past. Let me illustrate how it works. In material discontentment, we might think or say, if only I had that salary, then I would be able to get that house. Imagining a different future. Or we would imagine a different past. What if I would have gotten that promotion, then I could have a car that actually runs. Relational discontentment. If only I wasn't in liberal Kansas, then I would actually have a chance of getting married. Imagining a different future. Or what if I wouldn't have married them? Then I would actually be happy. Imagining a different path. Circumstantial discontentment. If only I didn't have poor health, then I could do so much more. Imagining a different future. Or what if I had been born into a better family with better parents, then I would have been so much better off imagining a different past. Listen, I'm not against imagining a good future, dreaming of a good future, praying for a good future, asking God to make you have a, allow you to have a better future. I'm not even against working for those things, but it's when you become obsessed with them 
so much so where there's inner turmoil and inner unrest, that's when it gets to discontentment. And discontentment is so dangerous because it's debilitating and it's distracting to your relationship and walk with God. That's why it's so important for us tonight to learn from the text how to be content. How did Paul do it? He said he learned it. And if he can learn it, that means we can learn it. The answer's in the text. Let me give you some context. Please pay attention. The Apostle Paul had just received a substantial and generous gift from this church of Philippi. A gift that actually allowed him to pay the rent and food expenses while under house arrest. That, that meant that, that, that he would have been chained to a guard under house arrest, but so long as he could pay those food and rent expenses, he wouldn't have to go into the Roman prison system, which was much worse. This made Paul incredibly happy when he received the gift. In fact, verse 10 says this, he greatly rejoiced. He, he rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That word greatly comes from the word megalos. You could say this, Paul was mega joyful. You ever been to our missions conference on the Sunday night? And we put all our missionary families, their kids and their wives and everything up here. And then we bring them, all the men, we bring them a brand new suit. And we get, we get the kids some shopping money and the wife some shopping money. And then we bring them up this, this, this gift card bouquet with hundreds of dollars of, of gift cards to gas stations. And, and we get their oil changed and, and department stores and, and so on. And so fast food restaurants. And, and a lot never fails. A lot of them cry. And you can just see that they're so joyful. I would say they're mega joyful to receive that gift. We go to the National Church Planning Conference at Heartland Baptist Bible College in Oklahoma City. And a man gets up there who's been called to plant a church in the inner city of Philadelphia, perhaps. And, he, and he's planting that church. But he goes and he, and he presents his work and he presents his burden. And he says, hey, I need, I need money for songbooks and I need money for a sound system. And I need monthly support. And, and we need money to pay our rent for the building we plan to, 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 to rent out so we could have church. And so on and so forth. Maybe he's going to have medical expenses because their family can't afford insurance. And so he'll present those to, to two or three hundred pastors that are scattered in the congregation. The moderator will step up to the pulpit and say, does anybody want to give? And it's amazing. Pastors start standing everywhere across the auditorium. And in a matter of five or ten minutes, it's not unheard of for that guy to receive, what, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000? And you can just see tears running down their face. And, and men around the, the building, mega joyful that they could invest into that ministry. That's what Paul's feeling. He, he, he sees, um, he, he tells them in essence in, in verse number 10, listen, I haven't heard from you in a while, and I know it's not because you didn't care, it's just because you couldn't figure out how to deliver the gift from me. But let me tell you, when I finally saw Epaphroditus walk into that prison house, and he had that envelope in his hand, I knew it was a love offering I needed really bad in the moment. And I got to tell you, I jumped all up and down. I cried. I shouted. I gave him a big old sloppy hug. I was mega joyful. However, Paul says, as joyful, don't miss this, and as thankful as I am for your gift, Church of Philippi, let me make a clarification. It's not like I was over there in Rome, miserable and down in the dumps and depressed just because I hadn't heard from you a while and just because I haven't received a love offering from you in a while and just because I was running low on money and supplies. Hey, don't get me wrong. I needed your gift to live more comfortably, but I didn't need your gift to live more joyfully. Did you get it? Amen. I want to make a clarification and look at verse 11. It's where he does. Not that I speak in respect of want. I didn't have to have this to be happy. 
For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Church of Philippi, thank you. That's why you wrote, church, that's why you wrote the book of Philippians. It's a giant thank you note. Thank you for the gift. It was timely, and your generosity has overwhelmed me. But just know that I've gotten to the point in my life where I can honestly say I'm content whether or not you would have sent me that gift. I'm content no matter what the condition or state that I am in. Now listen, that's an amazing statement. An amazing statement. And what makes it amazing is the condition that Paul often found himself in. He's saying, I'm content in any state, any condition, any circumstance. And he went on to say, I've experienced both extremes of life, the highs and the low, the mountaintops and the valley. And he puts it this way in verse 12, I've been abased, brought to nothing. And I've been abounding, I don't need anything. Look at verse 12. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I'm instructed. I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So Paul speaks from both sides of life. Let's talk about how Paul was content when he was abased. I began to think what, what scripture passages portray abasement in Paul's life. Or being brought low, being brought to nothing. Look at the scripture passage out of 2 Corinthians 11 and see if you've ever been through any of this. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. I've been beaten with rods before. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwrecked. I have never been shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Next verse. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Anybody have a resume that lines up with that one? And yet we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here's Paul's attitude. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Are you seeing this? We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're cast down, but we are not destroyed. In other words, I'm abased, but I've still learned to be content. In fact, I'm just going to borrow the words of a great theologian. The best ministry staff or ministry intern that Fellowship Baptist Church has known Outside of John Vaught and Alfred King, and that's Mike Collins. He's my third favorite. We've only had three. I call him Dr. Michael Collins, and he said this. Paul didn't let a deficit in his supply cause a deficit in his spirit. Dr. Michael Collins. He's in the nursery tonight. God bless you, Mike. Isn't that good, though? He didn't let a deficit in his supply cause a deficit in his spirit. I want you to be honest for a moment. If you suffered from these same things that Paul did at this point in your life, right now, today, I, I, want, I want you to evaluate yourself. Would you be content, shipwrecked, beaten, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, even betrayed by your own countrymen, your own friends? Would you still have a true sense of inner joy and stability? If you're unsure, the best way to know, listen, is to examine how you handled the last season of difficulty in your life. Did you maintain inner joy and stability despite your trial? How is your attitude? How is your composure? How is your perspective? I have found that that contentment 
is, is challenged most in our life when it comes to these abasement times, when it comes to these unchanging circumstances in our life that are beyond our control, much like Paul's situation. There's, there's something that my wife and I uh, went through earlier in marriage, still go through to this day, and that's infertility. And it took a long time for us to learn how to deal with that. Tried to have Kevin four and a half years, God gave us him, and trying to have another one for eight years, and God hadn't seen fit to give us one. And, and, and I'm just going to be real transparent tonight that it, it didn't come easy for us to, to, to be content with that. I'm talking about an inner joy and stability that's not shaken because of it. It's taken us a long time. I think we can say we've learned that. In fact, we looked at each other uh, just a, a couple of years ago, and, and, and both of us were very, very transparent. And, and it's amazing that God did this work in our heart at, at literally the same time where, where we can hear where other people get pregnant with their fourth or fifth child and they weren't even trying. And, and now we can honestly say in our spirit, like, we aren't shaken by that. It's not like we went and gossiped or got you know, massive, envious, or jealous. It just, we were shaken by it. It's like, why can't that happen to us? And it, and it didn't, and it hasn't, but we've gotten to the point over time where we have learned to be content. Our stability isn't affected anymore. That didn't come right away. We're talking like, like a long time. I've been married to the woman 13 years. Learning contentment doesn't happen overnight. That's, un, that's uncontrollable. That, that seems to be unchangeable. And we struggle with that for years, and I'm glad God has brought us to a point of contentment. And I wonder how you're doing in those situations you can't control, and those situations that seem like, like will never change. Maybe you have an unfulfilling or low-paying job. It's not that you're lazy. It's not that you're unreliable. It's just that God has seemingly shut the door on other opportunities right now. Can I ask you, are you content with that? Are you Okay. Maybe you find yourself in an unhappy marriage. It seems to be unchangeable and out of your control. You, you just can't get on the same page as your spouse, and you're done trying to change them. But at the end of the day, you said a vow to one another, and you're still bound by that vow. Are you content with that? Maybe it's continual poor, poor health. The Apostle Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. Many, many think that that was probably something physical. Something that he prayed three times for God to take away, but God would never take away. And maybe you're sitting in the chairs tonight and you struggle with, with, with continually poor health. You went to doctors, you spent time and money and all the resources you can think of to better your situation, but it's not helping like you, you want it to. It's beyond your control. It seems to be unchanging. As hard as it is, are you okay with that? Or are you inwardly shaken in turmoil and unrest? Don't misunderstand me. I didn't ask if you're bubbling with some superficial, outward, fake happiness. I didn't ask if you're totally free of grief, even though you're going through something that's heartbreaking. Because contentment doesn't mean that you have to skip grief. And contentment doesn't mean that you have to be superficially happy and bubbly all the time. Contentment is deep down inside. I'm asking if you have an inner joy and stability that anchors you despite your unchanging circumstances. What's interesting about this text is Paul didn't stop with saying he learned to be content in difficult circumstances. He continues in verse 12 and he says, I know what it's like to abound and have much, but yet I still stayed content in prosperity, not just poverty. While we know a lot about Paul's difficulties, we don't know as much about his prosperous experiences. 
I just began to think. I wonder what he was talking about. Maybe he was talking about in Acts 16 when he first planted the church of Philippi. And he met the prosperous, rich, seller of purple, business owner. Lydia herself had a big enough house to host the church. I guarantee he ate some good steaks at her house. Maybe it was those times early in the church he he met the Philippian jailer. And he went to their house because he shared the gospel with the Philippian jailer's family. And they all got baptized. I'm thinking maybe that the times of abounding he was referring to those early days of church planting in the churches of Galatia and Thessalonica and Ephesus and Philippi. And he saw much great fruit that abounded and remained. And he's like, wow, this is amazing. People getting saved and baptized like crazy. I love it. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Or or, or maybe he's talking about times when he went and just got by himself and had a little vacation. He went to watch the Greek games. You know, Paul did that. He loved sports. He loved athletics. He wrote about it often. He wouldn't be able to write about it if he didn't know about it. If there was ESPN back then, he would have watched it every night. He's a man of God. Maybe it's times when he just got away from the ministry for a while, and he just, he just sat and, and rested and, and enjoyed something that, that, that he loved. I, I don't know exactly what it was. I, I don't know. Maybe... Maybe it was when he was making tents. You know he's a tent maker by trade. And maybe there was a time in his, his self-employment there, his business, where he, didn't, he made so much money, he didn't even need money from the churches to, to, to continue planting churches. I mean, he was just prosperous. He had financial margin. Don't you like those months when you have financial margin? There's money left over at the end of the month. Maybe that was it. I'm not entirely sure. All I know was that even though he, he faced prosperity, where he lacked nothing, He didn't want more. And that's saying a lot because the the Bible speaks often of when you get rich and you finally get what you wanted. The Bible speaks often how that breeds discontentment. We we tend to think in our human minds, ooh, if I just get to this dollar amount, if I just get this promotion, if I I just get to this level of financial status, then that's going to be all I need. But then we get there and we want a little bit more. You get what I'm saying? Prosperity doesn't, does, doesn't equal to just automatic contentment. And, and I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying that, that you ought to apologize for abounding. You, not, you shouldn't apologize if, if the Lord prospers you financially or, or, or materially or circumstantially or, or relationally. All those are blessings from God. Every good gift and perfect gift coming down from the Father above. Don't apologize for God's blessing, but don't be fooled to think that it's the blessings that are going to make you content. What does it look like to abound yet still struggle with being content? Well, you finally get the job you've been praying for. It's fulfilling. The paycheck is larger. Now you have financial margin. What do most people do when they have financial margin? They spend more. So now the financial margin decreases because now you've got more bills. So now you're back to living paycheck to paycheck to paycheck even though you just got a raise. Because, because when, 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 as soon as we get a raise, we raise our standard of living. It's because we're discontent people. And now we're complaining that we need another raise. No, you just shouldn't have bought all that stuff. When God gives you a raise, you should save more and give more, not buy more and spend more. Come on now. You can be abounding financially and still be discontent. Maybe you, you decide in your marriage, I can't do it anymore, so 
perhaps you get a divorce and you meet somebody new and now you're abounding in marriage. It's like the honeymoon won't end. If only you would have married this good the first time, right? Yet a heart of discontentment doesn't disappear just because circumstances improved. Because a few years into the marriage, the new spouse actually starts acting like a sinner. And the same heart of discontentment that made you feel inner turmoil and unrest in the earlier marriage has begun to fester in your heart again. Even though you're abounding relationally, you'll eventually struggle to be content. Because your heart follows you into every relationship. Again, don't apologize to, for abounding. Just don't think that it's the trick. Even Tom Brady recognized this after he won his third Super Bowl. He said, it's got to be more than this. He said, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. That's the goat. Acrostic for greatest of all time, if you didn't know that. David Jeremiah, great author, listen, as he wrote about an inspiring television star who, who finally got a shot at a network series. He walked into the NBC studio, saw his name on a parking space, found the, the crew treating him like royalty. He was impressed when he saw the star with his name on it on the dressing room door. The series pilot, the first episode, was shot in five days. When it got to the television executives, they rejected it. They didn't like it. And they said, no, we're not playing this. And so you know what happened? The young actor left. No one said goodbye. The name was gone from his parking space, and his dressing room was locked. He said, I quote, all the success was like smoke. I couldn't get a handle on it. Like cotton candy. Once it was in my mouth, it was gone. And David Jeremiah followed that story by saying this, our culture is a cotton candy world. Sugary and seductive, a pink swirl of empty calories. Today you might have the flavor of the month. Tomorrow your pockets may be as empty as your soul. Are you with me? Being rich should not be your chief goal in life. But if you get there, if God gets you there rather, stay content. Stay content. Paul mastered the art of contentment to the point where he could still have everything he wanted, but yet he didn't want more. So here's the point in these, in these few verses so far. We don't have, listen please, we don't have to live scratching and, and searching for inward joy and stability. We can have it. We can know it deep down inside despite our negative or positive circumstances, but how? How did Paul have it? How did he learn it? Here we are in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Hear me. Contentment that transcends circumstances is only attainable through a strengthening relationship with Christ. I want you to listen so closely from here to the end of the message because if you don't know how to articulate this verse correctly, you will abuse it. And you will speak things into your kids' lives by using this verse, and it will be abused. Please, please hear me. It has to be understood in its context. Paul is not promoting a sense of triumphalism where, where, where through Christ we can become like superhuman. Honestly, it doesn't matter if you have Philippians 4.13 written underneath your eyes when you play in a football game. It's a good witness. It's a good testimony. It's a great idea. But if you're not good at football and you're not on the best football team, you're probably not going to win, even if you quote Philippians 4.13 throughout the entire game. 
Are you following me? That's like me jumping into the cockpit of a 747 airplane while quoting Philippians 4.13 and thinking God's going to help me fly this plane safely. I can quote Philippians 4.13, but I can't put God on the hook for my stupidity. If I want to fly, I need to go to flight school. Paul's not saying, hey, I can break these chains, body slam these guards, and run out of prison with 4-4 speed through Christ who strengthens me. When Paul said, I can do all things, he wasn't referring to all in a general sense. He was pointing back to the circumstances he just talked about. No, don't miss this. He said, there were times in my life when I had serious needs, and there were other times in my life when I had plenty. There were times in my life when I didn't have anything to eat, yet there were times in my life when my refrigerator was full of food. But despite my unchanging circumstances, my joy and stability remained the same. And here's why. I learned that something much more powerful was driving my life, an internal, compelling strength that was independent of my financial and my relational and my circumstantial experiences of life. Paul is saying, Christ was inside of me. Christ was moving my life forward. And everything but Christ became of secondary concern. Because of his internal strengthening by Christ, he could live with contentment in any set of circumstances. Did Paul get hungry? Absolutely. But that's okay because Christ satisfied his appetite. Paul was single. He never got married, but that's okay because he was in love with Christ. Paul's freedom was taken away from him, but that's okay because nobody could take away his liberty in Christ. Paul had a thorn in the flesh that wouldn't go away, but that's okay because he had the grace of God that would never run out. To Paul, Christ was all he needed because there was a point in his life when Christ was all he wanted. You can't say I can do all things through Christ if you don't really believe that Christ is enough. How did you do it, Paul? Had you learned to be content no matter your circumstances? Paul would answer, I learned that I could be content in every situation of life through the strengthening power of Jesus Christ. That tells me our lack of contentment tonight is not merely an attitude problem that we have to fix. And it's not merely a perspective that we need to change. And this text isn't calling us to take a deep breath and power up and show more discipline to be thankful with what we have. It goes deeper than that. Paul is implied that if we're struggling with discontentment, it's a heart issue. Better yet, it's a relationship issue. What we are saying if we're discontent is that Jesus isn't enough for us. Now we would never say that, but that's what we're saying. We're saying he, he, he's not all we need. And you know why we say that? Because we haven't gotten to the point in our life and in our relationship with him where he's truly all we want. I remember a story, pastor has told this story at a graveside service before. Teacher who asked her Sunday school class if they would quote by memory the 23rd Psalm. Four-year-old girl in the class raised her hand and said, I can do it, teacher. Well, then come up to the front. And she raced up to the front with a lot of confidence. And she took a big breath. And she said, Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. 
He's all I want. Thank you. And the little girl bowed her head to the class, proudly walked back to her seat, and the teacher was speechless. Because she left out a lot of verses. And she didn't say all the right words, but I think she summed up the entire psalm with that statement. The Lord is my shepherd. He's all I want. Question, is Jesus all you want? Have you got to the point in your relationship and walk with him where you crave nothing more than him? Because when you get to the point where you want him more than anybody or anything, that's when you'll realize he's all you'll ever need. Maybe you're thinking, I want to get to that point in my life. I want to get to that point in my work life, my financial life, my relational life. I want to get to that point in my spiritual life. I want to be to that point where I can say I am content whatever state I am. I want to learn to be content, but I just can't seem to do it. It's what I said about our circumstance of infertility for years. It's hard. The moment you think you're good, then then you get shaken again. I want to conquer it. I want to be content. Can I encourage you tonight? Don't get in a hurry to learn contentment. And don't get discouraged when you find yourself struggling to learn it. It is a lifelong pursuit. Please listen to this quote from Tony Merida in his commentary in Philippians. It's amazing. We might wish that a certain crisis would break us from our love affair with this world. But contentment isn't learned in a single crisis. It's learned through exposure to times of need and times of plenty. It involves a regular struggle to believe that Christ is enough. It involves us going through the school of need and the school of plenty. Both schools offer various tests that we must take. You get it? Don't don't condemn yourself. Don't get down in the dumps because you tend to wrestle with being content. Understand that God's got to take you through a school of plenty and he's got to take you through a school of nothing. And God's got to take you through the school of the mountaintop and through the school of the valley. And it's exposure to both of these things where over time you begin to learn this. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. So when you go to work, you get restless. There's inner turmoil. Here's what I want you to do. Stop and recalibrate. Take a deep breath. Find your strength in Christ and remind yourself that he's enough. If you never get the raise, if you never get the promotion, if you, whatever. If you never get to leave this, what you call a stinky town. Take a deep breath and realize Christ is better than a town. Would there be times maybe in your marriage where You get restless and discontent. Stop. Recalibrate. Find your strength in Christ and remind yourself He's enough. There'll be times when you're you're incredibly frustrated with your health to the point of being hopeless. I've watched my wife go through some of this with her Crohn's disease and medicine's not working and all of this kind of stuff. And that's not said for sympathy. That's just said I've seen people go through this. And you might to the point feel like you're hopeless, I'll never have the energy I once had. Stop, take a deep breath and recalibrate. Find your strength in Christ and remind yourself that he is always enough. As God takes you through the valleys and the mountaintops, as you experience the extremes of life, the good and the bad, abasement and abounding, 
Stay connected to Christ. And you'll find the strength to be content in every circumstance. At the end of the day, Paul learned to be content because he wasn't preoccupied with the situation. He was preoccupied with his Savior. And that's the question for you tonight. Are you preoccupied with your situation? Where you live, where you work, what you make, what you wear, what you drive, how you feel? Or are you preoccupied with your Savior? To quote NASCAR driver Jeff Gordon, either you focus or you end up hitting something really hard. Get it? He's not driving a go-kart. Either you focus or you hit something really hard. And in the Christian life, either you focus on Christ or you will crash into discontentment fast. And if you've seen a NASCAR crash, it doesn't just affect one car. You will then hit deceit and you'll hit complaining and you'll crash into distrust and you'll wreck into greed. And you won't just hurt yourself. You'll hurt all those around you. When you go to work and you're discontent, people will feel that. Go to church and you're discontent, people will feel that. You go home after work and you're discontent, your spouse, your children will feel that. You hearing me? You're not the only one that crashes. You might crash and burn, but others will too. Stay connected with Christ. Here it is. And contentment will follow. Don't take a deep breath tonight, come to the altar and say, God, help me to be content. It's not the point. Contentment's a byproduct. It's a result of a connection with Christ. You hear me? When's the last time you read your Bible? When's the last time you went in your prayer closet? When's the last time you had communion with Christ, connected with him so that his strength could infuse you and then when he puts you in a valley, you could maintain inner rest inner stability and inner joy it's not because of you and it's not because you're a contentment expert it's because you're connected to a greater source and if you're not connected to christ tonight don't come down here and beg him to help you to be content beg him to help you to connect to him and then philippians 4 13 will flow out of you you can do all things every circumstance you can be content in through the power and strength of christ whom you're connected to stand to your feet every head bowed and every eye closed